Welcome to another unhinged episode of Historically Badass Broads, the podcast where two women talk about other women mm. who are cool historically. And dead. <laughs> Usually yeah. dead. Have we done any living ones? No, you have no, a have about a, a certain amount of years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what's funny though? What? This episode, I'm breaking my rule. You're kidding. I'm not. It it it's it was actually something I hotly debated internally. <gasps> And you chose to go with the risky route. I chose to risk it and break it because I figured that the lady I'm going to talk about the would, would approve. She would yeah. approve of, of me breaking all the rules because she did that. And I like uh, it. Amazing. Okay. Well, well, I will say the aforementioned rule was that um, <laughs> I wouldn't speak of some, I wouldn't talk about someone who hadn't been dead for at least 50 years. And she's been right, dead for like 42, 42 years. So. Okay. I see. I see. I see. I figured, <sighs> you know. It's close enough to the confines. Indeed. Uh, we're going to talk about things a lot more modern than I usually talk about, especially because mm-hmm. lately I've been really into like ancient stuff. I've really been going back, you know, mm-hmm. um, just reading SPQR by Mary Beard, just reveling in her scholarship and brilliance. If anyone is interested in Rome, she's everything to me. I adore mm-hmm. her. Also has a lot of great uh, documentaries. Um and she's just the coolest historian. I digress. But today, we're going to talk about a lady named Virginia Hall. Have you ever heard about Virginia Hall? No. Cool. I hadn't either, and I love when that happens. That makes me I, feel better. Yeah. Well, I don't think she wanted anyone to hear about her, which is another reason for my hot internal debate. But also, I think oh, interesting. I just couldn't. I didn't. Okay. This was my brain on the inside while reading the book about her I read. It was called, um, the, what got me interested in her was a book called A Woman of No Importance mm. um, by Sonia Purcell. Purnell, excuse mm. me, I can't read. And um, I spent the entire time reading it going, no way. Like, I, my brain was short-circuiting. I could not believe what I was reading. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm going to take you all back. Not very far, guys. For me... <laughs> This just happened. This is so recent. <laughs> I physically don't know what to Blink do with it. Eye. Yeah. <laughs> We're only going to April 6th of oh. uh, 1906. Oh, stop. It just happened. Oh, my gosh. I know. That was yesterday. It was yesterday. <laughs> I think literally one of my grandparents was born before her. <laughs> that is a trippy piece of information. Yeah, also because my dad's dad was old and my dad is slightly older. Like yeah. when they both had kids. So yeah, I yeah, yeah. Was, I think he was born. I'd have to ask my dad when my grandpa was born. Oops. Mm. Anyway, I never met him, unfortunately. He was very cool. Um, she was born in Baltimore, which shout out B. Moore went to school mm. there. And she went to Roland Park Country School, uh, which was cool. And something I thought you would love more than anything was that, yes, she uh-huh. went to Radcliffe College, which is now uh-huh. Harvard. But guess what other women's college she went to, Chloe? Barnard College? Si, si. Oui. <laughs> <laughs> Barnard College she- of Columbia University, located in New York. That's right. And she studied, like, five languages. 
And she was brought up in a really interesting family. Her mom was a secretary who like got the husband, like her boss, Mm -hmm. you know? And so Mrs. Hall, Barbara, was very ambitious for her daughter. She wanted, you know, Virginia was very beautiful. She had really stunning red hair. She was quite tall. Mm-hmm. Um, and as she was growing up, it was clear she was unbelievably bright and very adept and astute and everything her mom did not want and that she was very adventurous and wanted so much out of life. You know, she wasn't contented for a quiet life. She was, but not in like a, she didn't need to go shout about it, but she wasn't contented just to sit down, get married and have kids and marry mm-hmm, rich, which mm-hmm. is exactly what her mom wanted because her mom had climbed the social ladder and wanted to continue that. That MRS so degree. You got to get one. And when she didn't get one, um, <laughs> same. Um, when she didn't get one, she, mm. she just kind of kept like studying like, I don't actually know where she ended up graduating from college or if she did. Because she also went to mm-hmm. GW. And then Ooh, she went to my France. Went. Oh, yeah. And that's oh, my where God. I'm partially from. What's happening? I don't know. <laughs> Too many coincidences. I know. Am I her? No. Reincarnate? We'll get I mean, I, technically you could be, I guess, because she died before you were born. <sighs> this is exciting. <laughs> So she <laughs> she studied in Europe. So she went to France. She studied in Germany. She studied in Austria. And so, so cool. she speaks French, Italian, German, Spanish. She took Russian. She speaks English, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, already I'm obsessed, right? Like already yeah, living for it. Very and cool. she really felt like compelled to serve. She really wanted to be in public service, but she really Mm. wanted to travel and do all the good things. And she saw a lot of opportunity for herself in the diplomatic corps and like the Mm -hmm. consular services. And Mm -hmm. um, they did not see a future for women, period. Of course. Because it was like the early 30s, 1930s, late 20s and 30s. So she didn't care. She finally, finally, after many job opportunities and losses, got a job as a service clerk at the American embassy in Warsaw. Ooh. And she was there for a little bit, and then she was able to transfer to Turkey. Uh-huh. And she served there for about two years when something really unfortunate happened that you can't help but talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think she would have hated being defined by it. In fact, we know that she was. So she went mm-hmm. on a hunting accident. She used to go – she went on a hunting accident? Spoiler alert. <laughs> she went trip. on a hunting trip. <laughs> And wow, we're doing great. She went on a hunting trip and she loved hunting. She grew up hunting, um, was very comfortable with all that. However, her foot slid on some mud and her gun got caught (gasps) in a fence and Uh -uh, it went uh -uh. off and shot her left foot. Oh my gosh. Literally could not have been more of a freak accident. This is a woman who's handled (sighs) guns since she was very little, went hunting all the time. Her family had like a 100 acre house, like- in yeah. outside of Baltimore, like, yeah, very, Country very comfortable. School. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, totally fine. Well, Roland Park is anyway. I guess now it's probably a lot more like suburbanized than it used to be. I imagine. Mm-hmm. So she's immediately brought to the, you know, they tourniquet, they because tr- she's her left foot's kind of dangling off, oh and gosh. so they get her to a hospital. But she's kind of in Turkey, which at the time was fairly. 
didn't have the best hospitals potentially. And so they actually mm-hmm. like got American doctors to come over. But um, mm-hmm. after a couple surgeries, unfortunately, she developed gangrene and they amputated her leg below her knee. Oh my gosh. And you can only imagine, I think, what, 1933? She's like 20 something. Mm-hmm. Here's a woman who like was very fit, very athletic, very outgoing, beautiful, you know, loved to wear beautiful clothes because she, when she moved to Paris, when she was in college, she like saw and understood what like fashion, you know, she just lived for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then here she is laying in a hospital bed in Turkey, far away from everyone alone. And That's so traumatizing. She's lost a leg. Yeah. And I can't even imagine. Like, that's insane. No, that's, yeah. Yeah. So after many more surgeries and many more, you know, things, she's eventually gets a prosthetic leg, a wooden one, because that's what they had at the time. And she names the leg Cuthbert. so deeply iconic <laughs> truly and okay she does dashing that name yeah in my brain mm-hmm. forever truly Cuthbert, Cuthbert. you said i did c-u-t-h-b-e-r-t yeah yeah absolutely yeah. great thank you yeah you're welcome we have to thank virginia um <laughs> so very quickly though she's like well this is garbage but like fuck it so yeah she's like great i'd like to go back to work and they're like Ooh, no and so she <laughs> they're like not only are you a lady but now you're disabled and we don't like that at all too um, because many problems yeah, people wow. who served in the consulate were meant to be fit perfect weird americans who of course don't actually exist or if they do they usually suck um but she ends up finally getting a job working as a consular clerk in Venice. And mm-hmm. Venice, even now, is notoriously tricky to navigate in, especially for someone who is yeah. working on, with a wooden appendage. And so she ends up like hiring a gondolier and she like gondoliers herself like around Venice. Icon. Like using the canal. Yeah, wow. Wow, wow, wow. Because Uh the bridges and the very wet sidewalks, like all of it, very tricky for her. And she, to the best of her ability, didn't ever talk about her injury. I don't think she was ashamed. She just didn't want it to be something that defined her. And so she like literally never brought it up and later would uh, (laughs) kind of shock people with it, which I love. Um, Mm. But after a while working in Venice, she ends up working in um, a weird border town in Estonia. So that's fun. Um, Yeah. So she's continuing to try to work and um, she attempts to be hired by the U.S. Foreign Service. So she really wants to be a diplomat. But around 1936, 1937, when she's like looking to be hired again, Mm -hmm. what was the statistic I read? Excuse me. It was like, of the 15,000 working foreign service members at the time, six were women. <laughs> Ridiculous percentage. <laughs> and when she was eventually turned down by the Department of State, 
they said it was because they had a rule against hiring people with disabilities I for love the same how exact that reason. Illegal now, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, and so she was turned down by the U.S. Foreign Service by the Department of State. Someone believed in her so much that they appealed to President FDR, a Whoa. man who was famously disabled, and he was like, "Yeah, Ooh, no." FDR so for two more no? years, FDR said, "Ah, a woman." And I'm like, "Sir, your wife." I'm you disgusted. Betray. <laughs> so 1939, she is working in the Department of State, but again, she's like a clerk and she never gets promoted, even though like so many dumb people do and men. And she, in like March of 1939, is like, you know what? I'm done. But mm-hmm. she also, through where she was in Estonia, was seeing like something's happening in Europe and it's been happening and it's really mm-hmm. bad. Like, whatever hap- is happening here is not good. And it's, it's like coming for us all kind of thing. And so she mm. ends up deciding that like whatever was happening, she wanted to help. And so she got to France and, you know, um, was it September of 39? I think Hitler invades Poland and very quickly he's looking to, uh, invade parts of France and the rest of Europe. And so mm-hmm. February of 40, she's work. She decides I'm going to go serve the country I love the most, which is France. <laughs> and so she becomes an ambulance driver and she does not mention her um, Cuthbert. She doesn't mention Cuthbert in the application. Mm-hmm. And they normally like wouldn't have hired her, but at this point they've had to mobilize so many troops. They've had to, you know, she's just not mm-hmm. able to, they can't Are turn down issues? anyone who can drive. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I was she's, going to ask if there are I any, think, yeah, driving issues. I think, I mean, I imagine it was exhausting because the way that she was an ambulance driver sounds insane. She didn't sleep very much. She drove whatever vehicle yeah. was necessary. She was trained in some um, first aid, but like, how much can you do? Um, mm-hmm. And mostly what she did, is she watched a lot of young men die and get severely wounded. And it deeply impacted <sighs> her because she saw it all as being so senseless. Yeah. And it was. And... Yeah. She continues to drive through regions that are being heavily airbombed with mm-hmm. artillery, and she's still driving her freaking ambulance. She's unarmed. She's not, you know, she's just a volunteer ambulance driver, but mm-hmm. she doesn't give up, and she keeps going. And then, of course, very famously in June of 40, the French fall and are defeated and i don't know how else to put it uh, start working with the nazis it's not great so she kind of makes her way out of france because it's not really that safe anymore um and i'm pretty sure it's after when was pearl harbor it was december 7th i know that because that was my grandma's birthday Apparently her 16th birthday was Pearl Harbor Day. And I'm like, ooh, sorry, Grandma. Anyway, um, she's like, yeah, it really dampened the party. I'm like, Grandma. She's like, what? It did. (laughs) (laughs) Grandma Judy was the light of my life. She was amazing. Anyway, um, she gets to Spain, which is under Generalissimo Franco. So it's not like it's much better down there because he's like, ooh, the Nazis. Like everyone's becoming Mm -hmm. friends with people because – Guess what, guys? Fascism, it's so weird. It's almost like there are all these people who believe in horrible, hateful things, and then they're given an inch, and they take a mile. 
and then they all come out of the woodwork. It's so weird. I could almost, I don't know. It feels familiar. I think there are lessons to be learned from history. I'm just saying that. Um, oh, so, really? Does it repeat hmm. itself? I heard sometimes. Consistently. Heard that yes. somewhere. <laughs> so weird. Um, so she meets literally fate intervenes. Sure. Whatever. Mm -hmm. She meets a British intelligence officer named George Bellows and he's like immediately struck by her. He knows she's intelligent. She was a very observant person. So she was talking about what she saw in France while she was leaving. And also while she was still working there, he was struck by her bravery, her commitment to freedom and the fact that she, it didn't matter that she wasn't French. She was like, what's happening is not okay. And someone needs to do something and I want to help. Mm -hmm. And so he gives her a phone number and he says, it's a, it's a friend of mine. I think, you know, you might want to call him when you get back to London. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't immediately call this guy. She takes a little bit, a couple months later, and then she finally rings up the guy and he goes, I've been expecting you, which I imagine is what he said, but I bet he didn't. But we do know he was expecting the call. And his name is Nicholas Boddington. <laughs> Great so name. British. And he was working for the SOE. Have you ever, ever heard of the SOE? It's ringing a bell, yeah. The Special Operations Executive. So this is the forerunner. Well, no, because MI6 was in operation at the time. But this is a special part. And it was brand new. And it didn't know anything about what it was doing. Like, mm. how do I stress that they were woefully underprepared, understaffed? And, not good. Uh, yeah, not good, but, but ambitious. So when mm -hmm. Churchill gave them the okay to found it, he said, go set Europe on fire now. Or no, now go set Europe on fire. Like, let's do this. Like, let's fucking go. Because he's Churchill. He can't help himself. And what a guy. So she goes through extensive training when they fi finally decide to hire her. Mm -hmm. She, everyone's like so impressed with this woman. I mean, they literally cannot believe it. They're all debating internally. But she's a woman. But she doesn't have a leg. But also... She's very cool, very interesting, mm -hmm. very intelligent. Maybe she could do a lot. I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. So she gets sent to the F section, which is France. Um, and she's the second female agent to be sent to France. Mm -hmm. And she is officially sent there in April of 1941. Um, oh, no, sorry. That's when she starts training. And then she's like, she arrives in Vichy, France, which is the, quote, free zone, which, of course, is not a free zone mm -hmm. and um, is completely operated and run by Marshal Patin, who's also just, like, not only capitulating with the Nazis, but, like, happily doing horrible things on their behalf. Um, <laughs> so she gets a really cool cover. She gets a cover as a reporter because they think she, they figured out that, like, her French was excellent, very fluent, but she had American accent, so they couldn't pass her as, like, a native. Um, right. America yeah. hadn't entered the war yet, so she was able to go right. as a neutral party. And actually, in fact, America was looking to be like, ooh, should we work with the Vichy government? Mm, maybe. Um, and because they think if we can help support the people who are living there – maybe they won't like the Nazis that much. And it turns out that was stupid and did nothing except waste resources. So good job. Um, 
she's actually sent to the town of Yishi and mm-hmm. um basically they're like so like see what happens there like scope it out like there's nothing mm-hmm. there for her she arrives with literally no support network like literally no network there's no one there to greet her there's no That's one funny. there to be like here's a safe house nothing And she quickly realizes like, oh, I guess that's what I have to do, even though that's not like the job they gave her. They wanted her to collect information. And the SOE's mission was to begin Mm -hmm. resistance cells. The French, you know, resistance, that's what she was tasked with helping to start that, which is unbelievably scary because. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, but also like, "Mm, we don't know what to do. Best of luck. Bon voyage. Um, you know, so. for like one person, not even like a team of people to figure it well, out. Well, they think they're going to be sending in a lot of people and they think that she's just the first of many. The There's first. a couple people there. Um, but very quickly she realizes like this has got to be a different service. So she's a cover for the as a reporter for the New York Post. So what she's mm-hmm. able to do is send information back and forth because again, America's technically neutral and mm-hmm. she can ask interesting questions of people and she's allowed to be inquisitive and no one's going to ask too many questions. Why? Because she's a reporter. Um, She can gather a lot of intelligence that way. And because she speaks so many languages, she can eavesdrop really well. Um, Mm. And they think, you know, she's able to publish articles about what's happening in France, but also submit quote, like there's always like two articles that she writes. She, her first one, by the way, when she lands in France, again, no help. Nada, mm-hmm. nothing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Rien. She publishes and writes her first article within 24 hours of arriving in France. So cool. So she gets there. Nothing. How do I stress this enough? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, ca- I can't because what I'm going to tell you in like a minute is going to make you so mad on her behalf. Um, <laughs> incredible. Ready. Yeah, get ready. <laughs> so she very quickly realizes like she does her best within a, she stays about a month in Vichy and she sets up like a very small network, but a very important network of resistance fighters in Vichy, which is the capital of the cooperative French German government. Like what? Mm-hmm. And she quickly draws the ire of Admiral Lehrer or Leahy. I think that's his name. He's the um, ambassador. And at the time America was kind of like, we should maybe help them. And he didn't want, anyone getting in the way of that. And he knew, I think he kind of suspected that she was more than what her cover was. Mm-hmm. Um, and she kind of quickly realized like, this isn't the place to start, like to have operations, but I'm glad I set up my little cell over here. So she goes to Lyon. She goes more South and she likes the location. It's near some borders. You can get to Spain, which is at this time, the only way to get in and out of France is to go through Spain mm-hmm. or Switzerland, but mm-hmm. not really Switzerland. Go to Spain because the Swiss were like, we're neutral. Help the Nazis. We're neutral. Um, and so she quickly learns that she stands out in a crowd because she's gorgeous mm-hmm. and red-haired and tall. And she has a slight limp that she doesn't realize she has that much, but she does. Um, and that's okay for her, though, because she can disguise herself. She'll tint her hair or you know, kind of adopt various personalities. She has a couple different code names. The one that she first adopts in Lyon is Marie, um, mm-hmm. also Germaine. And so she has a couple different ones, but Marie is the one that she becomes well-known for. And very quickly within arriving in Lyon, she establishes a massive and incredible cell of people. And it becomes hers. Like she doesn't, 
share this information. So more and more um, SOE agents are getting dropped in and she's like quickly learning that most of these idiots men are idiots and they are so careless. Like they'll have names of their contacts in there, like written on pieces of paper mm-hmm. or like an address written on a piece of paper. And then they get captured and guess what happens? Like they right. get, they talk too much or they, they don't realize that like rationing means that you can only drink on every other day or t- like today's not an alcoholic day. So they go ask for a beer, like idiots anyway. And of course this is heavily fortified, heavily running with the Gestapo. Like this is not the place. So she realizes very quickly, she can't trust her fellow SOE agents with her network. Um, but she establishes connections with a local doctor, Dr. Rousseau, who she nicknames Pepin or Pep. Um, mm-hmm. That's kind of his code name. And then um, oh, Rousset, R-O-U-S-S-E-T. Rousset, probably. Oh, that was so beautiful. Say it again. <laughs> like my ill nose <laughs> struggling to speak. <laughs> it makes you sound so much more French, though. <laughs> I'll take it. Say it again. Oh, actually, I feel like yeah. a trick pony. Rousset. Ugh, love. And then also a wonderful woman um, who runs all the brothels, um, Germaine. And she is everything. And so, yeah, I just adore this woman. Um, So quickly, Virginia and Germaine and um, Pepin, Pep, Mm -hmm. establish more and more people that they can support. And the reason why Virginia settled in Lyon was because she realized there was more active anger against the Vichy capitulations and the Germans in Vichy, and excuse me, in Lyon. Mm. And so she mm-hmm. saw more potential for resistance there. And again, it was a good location. And, you know, so she goes and she realizes very quickly she doesn't have a wireless transmitter. So again, it's the 1940s. Um, she needs a wireless transmitter, but in order to operate it, you need a wireless operator. And there are only, you know, it's very special training. And she unfortunately doesn't have the training. In fact, no one ever, I don't, all I could think was like, why didn't they have her do it too? But they were kind of like their own special, they were called pianists. Um, so they always asked about like, yeah. we need some pianists here, which I think is great. Um, or pianists which I hate saying. So I say pianists. <laughs> anyway. Um, and so she very quickly loves Lyon, not least of which because like it's got winding roads and weird alleyways. So you can make a quick escape. And mm-hmm. like her first night there, it's also so full of refugees when she gets there that she, d- there's literally not a room open for her. So she hikes up the hill, you know, and again, Cuthbert, oh, I always think about Cuthbert. She hikes up the hill yeah, yeah, and gets to a convent where very quickly the nuns are like, you like the Germans? And she's like, no. I'm sure it was a more tactful conversation than that. And they're like, welcome. We love you. So she stays there and quickly realizes the nuns are great. Music. Yeah. And the nuns are like totally happy to help. Like, let us help the resistance. Great. And then I'll again, she has truly, truly. So they become a great safe house. <laughs> 
Um, and she's got Pepin and he knows Germain. He's the one who introduces her um, to Germain, who says, like, my girls are working with Germans because they pay well. Um, mm-hmm. But they also hear a lot of their conversations and love to tell me about all of that. And Virginia's like, say more. I love this. And then they were kind of like, how can we help to disarm the Gestapo and the and the Nazis who are here? And so mm-hmm. one of their ruses, among many, but my personal favorite, is that Rousseau would get Rousset, Rousset, Rousset. Anyway, he would there give <laughs> nailed it. Um, he would give queen bills of health to the working ladies in Germain's brothel that were actually not clean. They were women who had syphilis or gonorrhea. Mm. And they would then work with Germans, infect as many as they could, and then he would treat them after. (gasps) And so they were like disarming the Nazis. (laughs) That's a crazy way to do that. It's amazing. I mean, another thing that the the lady, the working girls did is that they, um, they would drug them and then like search their pockets and then be like, wow, you got really drunk last night. And he's like, yeah, I don't remember a thing. And they're like, "Mm mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Or they would like get them really drunk or like drug them a little bit and then like ask them about their work. (laughs) It's just everything to me. I love it so much. Yes. Wild. Unbelievable. So the network and circuit of agents and resistance fighters that she found is known as Mm -hmm. Heckler. That's the the code name for her network. Mm -hmm. And she realizes too, like, so Germaine is working. She establishes a lot of safe houses and they they all learn, like, there's a a woman who works as a laundress and she... If there are two stockings hanging side by side in the window, it's safe to come in. If there are two, if there's one apart, it's not. Like they all develop these, you know, ways of transmitting information to each other. Mm-hmm. And it's more and more SOE agents start landing from England, start landing. And there's one named Georges um, Duboudin, which is so French. And his codename was Alain. And um, Alain sucks. I hate him. And she hated him because he was lazy. He was lax in security. He was younger than mm. her. And he'd been trained very famously by Kim Philby, one of the Cambridge Ring of Soviet spies, inauspicious beginnings. Yeah. And they loved him. And he was like, I'm such a leader. And they're like, you are, go. And so he was given the appointing as like captain of his own circuit that didn't exist yet. He was more rank, higher rank than her. And he was like, there shouldn't be a woman, especially one with a disability in charge in Lyon. And so she sends him up with, she sets him up with another group, not quite her own, because she's like, this is my group. And he doesn't go to meetings. He's like, I can't do anything. And he, he's telling the SOE headquarters, he's enlisted 10,000 men to fight. He's not enlisted a single one. What? Yes. So he starts... He starts drinking and he starts sleeping with a lot of women who aren't um, his wife. And they happened a lot in the war, but like, he's not very quiet about what he's doing. And he is like, I'm a secret agent. Like, look at me. Like he was so proud. And she says, there's a really interesting SOE quote that says, one was most afraid of one's own people. They knew too much about you. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. So she wouldn't let him take over her circuit and he was really mad. Um, mm. And they, Baker Street, who headed to the SEO, SOE, excuse me, were like, you should um, have him take command. And she literally told him to quote, lay off. <laughs> <laughs> so there's very famously something called the Villa Blois. Oh, no, Dubois. It's just Bois. I thought it was Blois. Like Stephen of Blois, who's like my most, one of my hated people in history. Right. I remember from the Eleanor Aquitaine episodes. I anyway. do. Mm. So the Villa de Bois. Uh-huh. Forest, right? Bois. Yeah. Nailed it. Woods. Guys, I still know like four words in French. Um. So there's a wireless operator by the name, uh, codename Christophe, and he lands and gets captured, but somehow miraculously escapes and then says, like, I think everyone should come meet me here, which is a complete massive breach of security protocol. They don't all meet together at the same place at the same time. So all these SOE agents that have just been just, Virginia's been there longer than any of them, snuck Mm -hmm. into France. They all, one by one, go, and guess what? It's a freaking trap. They're all captured, and they're all sent to a horrific prison where Kristoff magically manages to free himself again. What the heck? But, you know, he maintained throughout the war that it was just luck. He had nothing to do with any of it. I'm like, you, sir. Sold everybody (laughs) out, probably. Truly. And... So the wireless operator, the pianist that she'd been so longing and waiting for because she couldn't really get any information out, they were all in prison now. (laughs) And all these guys were arrested with like the names of other people in their pockets and like tickets from places they had just like just (sighs) idiots. So she's constantly combating against people who are are doing their best, it seems like, to destroy everything she's working toward. And if you're caught at this- From her own side. From her own side. And if you're caught, you're killed. If you're lucky. And if not, you're tortured very for a very long time and imprisoned in, you know, situations that are inhumane at best. So the Villa de Bois saga happens and- Mm -hmm. The, like, nine men are captured, and she's immediately, like, they're so stupid, but they can't rot in there forever. So she's like, I'm going to do what I can to get them out. But that's not going very well. And so one of the ways that she establishes communication back with SOE and Baker Street is that she makes friends with the American diplomats in uh, Lyon. And she connects with the consulate head there, who she, like goes at him and goes, I'd like to speak with some people, wink, wink. And he's like, understood, wink, wink. Let me help you, basically. Um, and so through the diplomatic pouch, which is like granted special privileges because it's diplomatic, um, mm-hmm. they she's able to smuggle letters. So it's like the first, and also SOE is able to give her letters back. So it's kind of the first time that she's able to have more rapid communication. And by rapid, I mean, it like takes a week. But it's better than mm-hmm. what they were doing before, which was like interpreting articles sent to the New York Post and back to London. I mean, it was just kind of absurd. And so she would have loved a wireless operator, but now they've all landed themselves in prison. And she's like, and literally she was invited to go and she was like, I don't know, this feels really weird. And so she doesn't go. So she just she doesn't get captured because she's smarter than everyone else. That's what I've determined. Yeah, How dumb out. were they? Oh, anyway. <laughs> so after that, she's like, I'm like not going to deal with all these people. And so she leaves, she's extra secure and she thinks Alana's is emotionally needy and an amateur. And 
she's only supposed to be there for no more than six months. But at this point, she's been there about that time. But she's also, what she has done is she's made friends with the people in the police. So they, and also people in the secret police, and they will warn her before a raid or warn her before Mm. stuff. And so Mm -hmm. she feels very secure in her position. And, but unfortunately she's becoming well-known. Why? Because she is so good at what she's doing that she becomes the place where people who are shot down can run and hide and seek security and she'll find them a piece of soap, which by the way was really rare. And she'll find them a bit of food with rations that she's able to get because there's a thriving black market and she's friends with everyone in it. And she's able to get them a drink and to safely get them back to wherever they need to go through Spain or through uh, another passage in the Pirane, which let me tell you something we're going to talk about later, but it's insane. She gives them all of her, Mm -hmm. like the coupons for clothes and shoes. And she was so good at helping people. It was almost her downfall because it was like, a constant traffic flow of people. But because of the work she had done and how stupid the people were at Villa Dubois, the SOE figured out that they should train people a little better. So that's positive. <laughs> and she becomes extremely cautious. Like she like won't even say the word England because if someone says it like that's it, you know, Angleterre. So instead she's, she yeah. says, we don't say the name, like when we're speaking, we say Chenu or, uh, you know, mm. yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we yeah. say like back there or back home or in that place, yeah. like they don't talk about it, but it's a code. And so there's a man named Peter Churchill who's unrelated, but he is a, there's a couple different agents who are SOE guys who are able to build and go in and out of France multiple times. And so again, she's in this one long mission and they're doing the brief missions they were supposed to do. So there's Peter Churchill and Benjamin Calvern, and they are massive fans of her and they realize what she's been doing and what she's done. And she has, again, she's been single-handedly fun- funding the resistance. She's been single-handedly funding soldiers and or secret people who need to get out of France. And also at large, she's trying, (laughs) she's trying to find the like nine or dozen, or I don't know, I think there were maybe up to 12 people who were captured at Villa de Bois. And so Peter Churchill's entire job was to figure out where they were. And they Mm -hmm. figured out that they were being held at this horrific prison. Um, and like, they end up finding where they are. I forget what the name is. It's like Peri, Perigo or something like. Yeah. Oh my god, I was right. I found it. That's exciting. Ooh, I did read. Um, it's uh an old like stronghold. Um, mm-hmm. it is freezing, infested with rats. If they give them food, it's usually um rotten, and they like to just randomly line up people and shoot them. Um, these men were not, are not being held under the conventions of uh, the Geneva conventions because they are special agent forces. Mm -hmm. Um, and so very quickly they found a couple different people who are able to help. And Virginia is like, I need, I need to help. And so 
there's this bit where Peter Churchill's trying to get back to Virginia with some of the information that they were both able to find and they're going to talk at a cafe. And Olive, who's one of their, um, or Olivier, who's one of their contacts, who's going to end up being really helpful for this. Um, they're going to, Churchill's actually pulled over by some thugs who are pretending that they're like Gestapo and they rob him. And Olive is meeting with Virginia and all of a sudden they are completely blindsided by a raid. And so they, they're, you know, they're just lining people up and searching them. And it's because the Vichy government had promised like 30,000, um, uh, basically slaves, like slave labor for the Germans. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and so they, said that they would help and Vichy was like, yeah, 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 we'll totally do it. But like, they've just been randoming, randomly rounding up people. Um, Mm -hmm. And basically had a couple things happen, they would have been shipped off to Germany. Um, The police had blocked the street. There was no escape. But thankfully, the inspector sees Olive, um, Olivier and Virginia, and they are... um, they link hands, Olive does, because he sees the inspector and he knows, I know this guy. And so by mm. linking arms, they're like, we're together. And the inspector goes, I'm going to talk to these two separately, brings them to an office, and he would deal with them differently. Realizing what had happened, Churchill's like, I got to get there and I got to get there. And then he finds out what happens and he goes, shit, they're not showing up at their other location. And then Virginia and Olive are in this room. This is all happening at the same time. Virginia and Olive crazy. are in this this office and they realize like there's a window. So Olive like boosts Virginia up and they escape through a window oh. and they get to Churchill and then Olive is like, no, 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 we got to go. And they like both run away. They realize um, that they're raiding the cafes and Virginia's like, they're like, we need to get out of town. And she goes, not yet. We got to lay low for the night. And cause it seems like they're rounding up everyone. They're going to go straight to the train station. They're like, Oh yeah, good call. And, um, She's like, by the way, you weren't robbed by the Gestapo. Those were like thugs. And he's like, damn. And um, she says to him while they're waiting to escape, she says, we age very quickly out here. And with age comes wisdom. A hundred, she mm. felt a hundred years old. And after such narrow escapes as they had both experienced that day, none of them would ever quite be the same. Oof. And she says, when you get home, it'll look different from a distance. You'll forget how cold you were, except to bring warmer clothes next time. You'll forget all the frights you've had and you'll only remember the excitement. So at the same time, she's literally the happiest she's ever been. (laughs) Good for her. Yeah. She deserves it. She is like never been more scared, never been more tired. They literally give them amphetamines to like perk them up. And she is literally like, this is it. So December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor. America's no longer neutral. And they're like, you need to come back. And she said, Ooh, I like what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she stays against everyone's idea, but it's no longer a really good situation. Like it just keeps getting more and more intense, but she goes like, it's just really not good here. She's very sick. It's very cold. She's like, Maybe I'll get some butter one day. I would like to get a new pair of shoes. She's like, I, she even says in one letter, in fact, I'm feeling very sour. Um, Mm -hmm. But she like never really again, like kind of says that she never really allows herself to be sad anymore. And Mm -hmm. so 
she ends up continuing on and basically just continuing her missions and escaping literally all the insane things. Um, Mm -hmm. She ends up moving up her security. She moves apartments and she has this great clever thing where she's able to move like a, a plant plot into the pot, into the window. If people can come up and, you know, people know to ask her, she changes her name. I think she's now known as, um, Philomen. Um, and so they get a couple new wireless operators and they are working as fast as they can. However, they, the Nazis are developing anti-wireless transmitting signals like at the same time. Uh, and they're getting really, really good at like targeting too people. Long. So these, I know. So they're like having to really move around too much and it, it's not great. So they don't have like a long amount of time. And mm-hmm. so again, she's working like she doesn't want to be with all these people. Like she gets Alen. Like, she says to, um, like, he literally starts, Baker Street's like, Alen, put your 10,000 men into work. And he's like, yeah, 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 totally. And he's talking about all this stuff. They send him half a million francs. And later, they realize they didn't do, he didn't do shit. So she's like, I'm sorry. He is literally the worst. He's not (laughs) done anything. And Mm. she literally wrote writes to Nicholas Boddington. She goes, a good executive and organizer would be greatly appreciated. Love. She goes, a different type is needed to exploit the situation, a type both hardworking and punctual. Please ask Olive about this, as I hate the thought of telling tales, only I do despair at times. Good for her. Yeah. And Ellen goes back and goes, I heard that she's a slut classic response classic could um, not be more predictable it, it's almost oh I mean, yeah it's just, well you're a slut <laughs> yeah like just immediately um and again they get the wireless operators um and like everyone's getting captured like she's constantly <sighs> like avoiding capture because of her idiot colleagues mm-hmm. and like i just it, it's agonizing to me to like read about and so basically he ellen gets all of these explosives and fuses and detonators and guns and pistols and cigarettes and chocolate and tea and itching powder for the germans girls probably and he passes it on and um, he didn't store it properly, so everything rusted. Um, they used the explosives to blow off, like, newspaper kiosks, which is a complete waste. They were supposed to save those and use them for guerrilla warfare. Doesn't happen. And she's like, this is complete waste. This is absolutely insane. She's so mad. Ellen hears that she's complaining and he goes, I'm sorry I clashed with her, but I protest against her behavior. I do not doubt she was helpful, but I did my work without her job. He's saying she's claiming credit for his work, but he doesn't say what his work was. He says, I know my job. Marie is of no use to me. And if somebody has to give orders, I shall not her. But a small little man. And then one of them is like, (laughs) one of the guys who goes like a wireless operator goes and he likes Alain and, but he is like, I want more money. And she literally says 
to Baker Street. Why the hell should I pay him? <laughs> yeah. And then she's sure. like, where's my rank? She's not given a military rank unlike everyone else. She's not given anything. And she says, what happens to soldiers who refuse to obey orders? What do you recommend for men sent by you who flatly refuse to obey orders received from you? Have I authority to deal with such cases as I see fit? Mm. Mm-hmm. And eventually, London learns that Zeph, who's the guy who's working with Elen, basically says, like, they learned that his opinion of Marie was, uh, Virginia, was totally unfounded, and that he was kindly to settle down and work calmly. I'm glad that a man was able to confirm the truth. Because yes. Because it didn't, it didn't, it wasn't true until a man said it was. Yeah. <laughs> so Elen gets picked up finally. Picked Good. up finally. And then he brags really publicly about the police officer who let him go. Uh-huh. who was a resistance sympathizer, and they arrest the guy and torture him for 48 hours. Elena had been sleeping with multiple women, all of whom found out at, like, the same time and were like, you, and, like, basically betray him. <laughs> <laughs> it's just... This guy is just a walking trash fire. <laughs> a walking garbage can. Yep. And so, again, Virginia's continuing her work. She's doing her darndest. And at the same time, her secret plan all along has been to break out her dumb idiot colleagues from prison. (laughs) The whole time. She's like, not only am I not sleeping and I'm single-handedly running the resistance and like starting it and managing it. This is crazy. Let me go ahead and break these idiots out of prison. This is crazy. I'm not even at the crazy bit yet. (sighs) I'm telling you, the entire time I'm reading this book, I'm like, no way. <laughs> no way. This so she complains. Hot gossip. <laughs> I know. Literally the tea. Um, especially because all of this is like clandestine. <laughs> yeah. And like yeah, the yeah. only correspondence we have is of her back and forth to her bosses where she's like, this is stupid. <laughs> oh, yeah. By the way, when one of the people who heard about Cuthbert – they didn't know that Cuthbert was like her wooden leg. So one of the guys is like, like mm. her partner or something. Yeah, they like, who's this guy you're always talking about? And so she takes her leg off and like bangs it against the table. And they're like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I adore so her. Good. Yes. So they she goes to Admiral Leahy, who's the or ambassador. He's the guy in Vichy, and she goes, you're going to do your best to get them transferred out of Perigo and you're going to do it now. And he's like, no. And she goes, no, 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 do it. (laughs) And she vaguely threatens him and says, I'm reporting to the New York post. It would be a shame if they learned about these men being tortured in prison and no one's doing anything. She's doing it for a good cause. She's, oh God, I don't even care if she was doing it for a bad cause. I support her. Um, But thankfully she was doing it for righteous reasons. And so she gets them moved to um, Mosaic, and that's a different prison, but it's more of an outside work camp. So it's a little more lax in security. They are still kind of suffering, but mm-hmm. it's in a smaller town. It's not like a fortress. And mm-hmm. so one of the men's wives um, decides she wants to help. And so she's been delivering care packages to the best of her ability. And so she's been able to report on the condition of the men. So Virginia starts working with Gabby and they start sneaking things into the camp. And at first, all she's doing is giving them food and rations, which a wife was, I guess, allowed to do at the time, which sounds very nice. And so the mm-hmm. the, the men grow used to her doing that and they just don't search her anymore. So she's like sneaking in like files in a can of tomatoes or, you know what I mean? Or they're using the can mm-hmm. and they're able to like keep the materials and hide them. And mm-hmm. so she gives them 
bread and they, he, one of the men, um, Big U, makes a mold of the lock that locks their door with the bread and they keep the can and they make it into a key. They paint a false door because they realize that if one of the searchlights were to go on the door and it was open after they left, like it wouldn't look good. Um, and they start planning like an intense escape. They have to get them not only, Oh, it's insane. They have to get them not only out of Mosaic, but out of France. Like it's, it's not simple. And so she arranges a safe house for them full of food and even chocolate, which I think is just the sweetest thing. Chocolate, I know. And she gives them like a hideaway. It's not too far away, but far enough away and hidden where they'd be able to be safe and sleep for the night and or change so that they weren't Mm -hmm. wearing like old gross prison clothes. Mm -hmm. And so she's planning and planning and planning. And she's with, you know, a new wireless operator. And they are working so hard to get these men out of prison. And Gabby's in there delivering things. And not only that, she's making contact with one of the guards and is able to flip him and bribe him. Whoa. And one of the things he, it's insane. One of the things, well, cause these guards are actually slave laborers. Yeah. Yeah. These were guards who weren't German. They were just forced to work there. And so they, I don't think they had any loyalty toward the Germans or the Vichy government. They were just like, whatever. And here she is. (laughs) Yeah. And also they're, everyone's suffering. They need the money. So she offers them money and they're like, yeah, we'll help. And it's risky, but they don't really have much to lose, you know? Yeah. And so he persuades the commander of their camp that the watchtower that just so happens to overlook where the men would be escaping, like the line of, you know, area. Mm -hmm. He just so happens to say like, "Ah, it's really, really wobbly up there. I don't think we should post anyone up there. It's really unsafe. And the guy's like, yeah, sounds good. (laughs) And one of my favorite things I've ever read in my life, there is a, a priest comes to visit them and he start in, in the the men in the camp. He's Mm -hmm. a 70 year old French priest. He was wounded um, in action in the first world war. And Mm -hmm. he's, he's starting to, pay them visits and, you know, convalesce with them. I don't know. And one day he says to them in the middle of the room, he goes, you know, he's like, oh, I'd like to go inside your barracks. I want to see all the work that you've been doing in here because slowly the men had been like working out and trying to rebuild their strength because they knew they had to be in really good physical condition to like run, you know, literally Mm -hmm. run Mm -hmm. and a couple kilometers and then hike across a mountain pass. Like they had to be in good shape and they were all weakened from, like a year in that horrible prison. Um, yeah, yeah. So the priest says, wait, 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 bring me into your, ba- I'd love to see what you've done with the place, you know? And then they go in and he's like, I've got a present for you. And he lifts up his cassock and inside he had snuck a wireless set. Ooh. And so they said, great, Scott, it's a piano. Um, and so they, when, the on a moonless night a couple nights later big you who's the same guy he runs the wire 70 feet under the eaves of all of the huts and within a week of that he's transmitting messengers to baker street who's like holy shit he's giving us messages from inside the prison camp that's insane it's unreal and 
he's giving intelligence of one of the guards that they also became friendly with mm-hmm. about how many, what the Germans are doing in the war, like the news about all Oof. of that. Yeah. Oof. I know. And that they're getting, you know, all of this stuff and they're still in prison while all this is happening. And the radio detector vans are nearby the German ones, but there's no way they're like, the, the Ger- they're like, wow, weird. It almost would be like it's coming from the camp, but there's no way. So they never search. I mean, yeah, I, it doesn't feel plausible enough to even look. <laughs> yep. And so they have one trial run and they test it and the key didn't work. And so they have to fix it. And Big U's working and they're all the while, by the way, that they've been working on all the stuff, they sing like really body, like obscene songs, like very loudly to cover up the noise. Well, yeah, as a distraction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. And they have to escape between July 8th and July 15th because otherwise like they wouldn't be able to make it. And this is 1942 now. And well, there's actually something really stressful that happens. I don't know if we have... We have time. I'm going to talk about it because it's insane. So accidentally, um, they had been slipping messages to the two men in little aspirin containers. And accidentally, they had been tossing the two back and forth to a, a warder. But the warder passed the message on to a colleague. And he slips the tube into the pocket of his jacket because accidentally it had been in the wrong pocket. Oh, no. But thankfully, the mass sergeant or mess sergeant says, like, if I if you give me some money, I'll give it to you. And so she does and gets it back. And it's, like, just insane. Oof. So here's how the Oof. escape goes. First, what they do is – it's just – I just, like, can't understand. It's insane. First, what they do is they um, – they sprint from their hut to a dark spot that's shielded by another building. I'm reading this from the book because it's so good. Mm-hmm. But that's shielded by another building from the bright arc lights on the towers. From there, they would need to run to an exact predetermined point in the barbed wire fencing located, you know, during all of their workout sessions. They figured it out. That's out of mm-hmm. sight of the manned watch towers and relatively dimly lit. Here, the wire would be held slightly apart by ta- that tables as part of the, quote, redecoration of their hut you know, that they built to do this purpose. Mm -hmm. A piece of old carpet would be thrown down to stop their stomachs from being torn to shreds as they crawled through in near flat style. Um, Then they have to run. So they, yeah, they have to run to the fence in two stages, work their way through several yards of barbed wire fencing, all in the dark, all in no more than a single minute. The entire process has been timed to the split second to avoid the regular rounds of the guards and the patrols oh at any time might spot the open door. And so that's when they paint the false door. And at dinner that night, they're trying to chill. They, the doctor had been let in on the plan and he was really scared and he didn't want to get hurt and he didn't want his family hurt. And so they gave him a sleeping potion so he'd be knocked out and he had an alibi. But that they, quote, drugged him, you know, so that he wouldn't be unsafe. And so at three o'clock, the first guy sleep you know oh no yeah one of the guys slips away he lights his pipe and that's the signal big uh-huh. U inserts the key into his lock it creaks unfortunately they oiled it but whatever he pins up the painted door and the first guy rushes through and they unroll a ball of string that's like a signal line so that yeah. one tug meant it was clear three tugs meant no 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 don't go and one by one the men did it 
and the one by one. Yeah, I don't even know. And then a guard, the last guy gets there, and a guard is about <gasps> to get there. And the he's about to, you know, kill the guard by sneaking up on him. Mm-hmm. And the guard says, is it the English, like the Englishmen? And he says, yes. And the guard says, well, don't make so much noise. <gasps> and then what walks luck. away. What luck. And so all 12 <sighs> men escaped. It took exactly 12 minutes. And they run three kilometers to the safe hut where they find the things that had been left and organized for them by Gabby and Virginia. Gabby, by the way, had been arrested at this point. She was shaken up, but she had been released because she had a really good couple of alibis. Mm-hmm. And at daybreak the next day, they had had one of some of their fellow prisoners at that moment start shouting about the guys who escaped. So they had planned even when the guards would find out about it. Wow. So that they knew how much of a head start they'd have, you know? Right, right, yeah. And every single one of them Every single one of them makes it out. It takes a couple of weeks for all of them to make it because they have to go in stages. There's 12 of them. They have to go a couple at a time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's the most unbelievable escape. And she had like no interest in being known for it. And eventually Gabby Bloch and her husband, who was one of the guys, um, they both end up receiving the Legion Légion d'honneur, and she's recommended for a medal for courage. The SOE puts Virginia forward for a CBE of the British Empire, Mm -hmm. and she says no. (laughs) Oh, no, she was turned down, I guess. But basically, Nazi High Command learns about the Mozak men escaping, and they lose their shit. And so they, they decide you know what, we're done. And so they know Lyon's kind of the center of operations for the resistance. And Mm -hmm. basically it's the time's running out. Virginia is so happy because it's been great. She's been there almost a full year. She's the only woman in the F section the entire time. The entire time. Unreal. She was starting to hear more and more from people who have been released from prison about what happened to the people, especially the women who were imprisoned and some of it so foul. I don't really think I should say it out loud, Um, Mm -hmm. but think of the worst thing in the world and go one further. And that's what they were doing to the women who were tortured. Um, There's a man named Klaus Barbie. That's his name. Uh, He is known as the butcher of Lyon and he um, loved to torture um, women. I I like, uh, I want to say it because I want people to understand what people are capable of, but um, it's pretty foul. You can read about it um, in the book. It's page 130. That's I don't really forget it because yeah, it's yeah, really, yeah. really, yeah. Um, some of the things that they did was also harming their family members or threatening to kill their children in front of them. Like they just, I mean, some of the things that they did were, yeah. Um, Heinous. Yeah. And so the stakes literally could not have been higher. Um, Mm -hmm. Virginia Mm -hmm. didn't want anything except to help. Some of the people who had made it 
through um, who were working as couriers or as wireless operators, a lot of them mm-hmm. were being sent to concentration camps. And um, a lot of them were being sent to work camps and a lot of them were just being killed and tortured. Mm-hmm. Most of them actually were unbelievably brave in those times and didn't give up a lot of information. Some of them did. And she's really tired of a lot of the men who are being captured because they're careless and then risking the lives of people in her circles, right? Mm-hmm. People mm-hmm. who are mm-hmm. are risking everything to help their country and to resist, you know, fascist oppression and torture and the most inhumane and evil, literally evil actions. And because of the carelessness of some man's ego, they're being put at risk. And she literally says at one point, you don't, I don't want you to send anyone unless he is a quote, first class man, experienced, authoritative, willing to take responsibility and lead an unpleasant life. And most of all, not complain. It's crazy that that's not just the norm. (laughs) Yeah. She said, yeah, Peter Churchill compared the half dozen aces, such as Virginia, who did all the work for the, quote, privilege of half starving to death in this no man's land with those who were, quote, sloppy and gutless and came whining and groaning and who could not hold their liquor. Ooh. <laughs> and so she really was so singular because I think she was really good at being solitary. So a lot mm. of the people were like really alone and it was I can't imagine a more lonely existence. You can't trust anyone fully. You know, no one's yeah. really using people's real names. They don't know much about your life. Um, mm-hmm. And you don't want to share too much because it can hurt everyone. Mm-hmm. And Virginia, I don't know if she was okay with it, but she was good at it. You know, like mm-hmm. I'm sure it was alienating. I, I can't imagine that it wasn't, but also she did it. And a lot of the men Her literally couldn't deal. Yeah. Her purpose yeah. was higher and she's, like most women, able to put her personal needs aside to do better things. Oh, 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 what? Oh, speaking truths. Mm. Is my bias well known at this point? I mean, yes. I, you know, this and is a literally podcast. I know, <laughs> but like literally, the men are like, "But I need to sleep with someone." So yeah, like they literally cannot keep it in their pants. And meanwhile, she's like, "Well, here are my rations." <sighs> Here's my tiny bar of soap that I've been keeping. Please clean yourself. The standards that we are all held to are so unbelievable. Different. It's wild. And it's all getting tighter and tighter. The circle is closing in on her. And she starts ramping up her operations. And one of the things that she does is she's like, well, there's a lot of people who are captured. Um, some of the men that she had worked with through no fault of their own, actually some of them, uh, but some of them really had been captured. And she said, you know, Olive had been captured. The one who saved her from that um, police raid. Um, he had formed a 30 sabotage. He had formed 30 sabotage cells along the Côte d'Azur. He wrecked a number of trucks and fuel reservoirs and power lines and railway trucks. He collected intelligence. He completely created a new stuff. However, one of the couriers he did was denounced. They opened the sealed diplomatic, you know, envelopes and he was captured mm-hmm. finally after days of torture. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, the SOE was developing 
these crazy weapons that sound fake. So one of them was a milk bottle that exploded if the cap was removed, loaves of bread that would, quote, cause devastation when cut in half, fountain pens that squirted poison, and the best one was fake horse poop that exploded if it was driven over. Fascinating. There were lethal charges that they could put into cigarettes or matchboxes or bicycle pumps, fountain pens, hairbrushes, and of course, railway engines and fuel tanks. One of them looked like a fake piece of coal that they would just throw on a train and it would blow up like minutes later. Incredible. And the fake horse poop was so effective that German, and eventually the Germans like caught on that what it was, but that every time they would come up to something like that, they would halt. So it like delayed a lot of operations because they had to check it out. (laughs) So I just love that it's also like sewing chaos. Yeah. 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 And so she's now, again, some of the ex-girlfriends or the girlfriends of some of the men there are like spilling the beans. Why? Because they're women. And also because they're getting paid and it's horrible wartime. Mm -hmm. Um, And also their sympathies lay somewhere else. And so finally, Alain realizes that he's a, quote, bluffer, vain, and boastful. They recall him to London. He tries to bring one of his new mistresses, but the agents are like, what? And stop. And she reports that, (laughs) and Virginia says, we are all vastly relieved that he has departed. And she's like, well, what about the weapons that were given to him? Like, what do we do with that? And London's like, we really should have listened to you. So she knew she was being watched at this point. Klaus Barbie is literally on the hunt he wants nothing more than to get this woman at this point they're kind of learning that she is a they think canadian or english woman that she's definitely not um she's not french and that she has a slight limp yeah so they called her the limping lady la dame qui boit and Yeah, she was so pissed off. She's like, I thought I disguised that. And they were like, well, we know. And so at the same time, there's a man who is a priest. And he shows up to Dr. Rousset. And he is being sent by a different, like, SOE type subsidiary. Mm -hmm. And his name is Robert Alice. Alice? Whatever. And... Immediately, Rousset feels like he can trust him. He's a priest. He's a member of the clergy. And he has good credentials. And he wants to meet Marie, who is Virginia. They all know Marie. And the guy goes away. And they he asks for 200,000 francs that's due for him to be this courier. And the doctor's like, I don't know if I had it, but um, the guy's like, oh, I'll come back. Don't worry. So he comes back three weeks later and he really wants to meet her. And Rousset is like, I'm so happy that you're not dead. Yes, she'll meet you and give you the money. And immediately she finds him and goes, I don't know how I feel about this guy. Not least of which because he has a very German accent. (laughs) He says, oh, I'm from Alsace. Um, I'm a priest in suburban Paris and he's like I'm sorry my colleagues didn't warn you I'm coming but I'm here and he had all the right information and Dr. Rousset trusts him so she doesn't feel great about it however yeah the WOL which was the subsidiary here was far part of was backed by MI6 
And so he has good credentials. They feel good about it. Um, and they seem, it seems okay. And so she's handed some good information. Um, but he says, uh, you know, one of the guys gives her 109 photographs and maps and that he's not going to come back. But Alesh Robert says, I think the just Gestapo are onto me. And, oh no, the guy said, I think the Gestapo are onto me. Someone else will come later. And that's when Robert comes, Alesh. And so he says, oh, I don't have anything because, and he comes empty hand and he says, I don't have anything because a colleague was arrested with a list of agents and he's so concerned for his own safety and for her safety and they need to be very prudent. And so he's like, give me a radio set for a resistance group in Paris. Like he's immediately asking for like the most important stuff. He has this handwritten note, but she says, okay, she doesn't feel really good. Um, but she trusts him. He knows the code names. He knows the addresses. He knows the stuff. And they nickname him Bishop. And she gives him the cash and he leaves. Next week, she's very upset because the WLL, the thing that he had, the Bishop had been working for, was full of arrests. People were raided and... She just found out about it, but the bishop had gone to see her after that. So he should have known. And he later explains, I didn't want to give you bad news. And she's like, I don't know what? how I feel about it. And he's mm. like, I, you know, she's like, I don't know. But basically the money that she gave him didn't arrive to the right person. And, but he has an answer for everything. And he says though, like, I need to know more people in your circuit in case you disappear. And she's like, no, no. And she calls him a problem child. And she asks Baker street and says, can you check on him and give me instructions? She goes, I can't believe he's fake because he knows so much, but mm -hmm. I just don't know. And they're like, yeah, we'll go through, but there's nothing on him. It seems like he's okay. And she decides, well, I can handle him. Like it's okay. And she's, given a radio set for him and a hundred thousand francs and gives it to him. And everyone's kind of like, Ugh. and turns out as I'm hinting, he's a double agent. <laughs> um, he had been known for spouting anti-Nazi rhetoric from the pulpit, but very quickly he was like ratted out and he gets to the Nazis and they're like, we're going to kill you or you can spy for us. And he's like, I will happily spy for you. So because he had already kind of been known as an anti-Nazi guy, right, he immediately gets accepted into a lot of the anti the resistance groups. And unfortunately, that's what happens. Um, so the money that he that doesn't show up, he, of course, had already spent because two of his parishioners were his mistresses and he was drinking a lot of expensive wines and he was, you know, buying on girls and liquor. Yeah, and also buys works of art that had been looted from mostly Jewish people. Um, he says, my dad was shot by the Nazis and killed. That's why I hate them. Or by the Germans, but of course his dad was totally alive. Um, he was so happy to help the Germans. Um, yeah. And they couldn't believe. Like quite the yeah. jump. <laughs> he couldn't believe that he had actually, like, they couldn't believe that he had actually put them in touch with Marie. Because they knew. Like she was, they kind of figured out at this point, it was a woman. Like I said, she wasn't right. French and she had a limp. So they knew. Right. Yeah. And 
the Abover, who's the, you know, like secret police, um, mm-hmm. paying him a ton of money. And they're giving him more art that they're looting. They're just going to give it to him. And now he's very rich and they love him. And they, they knew, you know, like what they could do with this information. And so a couple months later, she realizes like, not good. Um, This isn't good. (laughs) This isn't right. Mm -hmm. And so they don't use him that much anymore. Like the Gestapo doesn't really move in on him too much. Cause, but they, they've done what they needed to do. They kind of did the stuff. And so she realizes, I think because so many people that she knew in her zone had been arrested and she knew that the Germans were going to invade the rest of Vichy France and like officially take over. She's like, my time's up. And so she says, I need to leave but Mm -hmm. I don't want to do too much because I don't want to leave so suddenly that I leave my people. But she basically doesn't really have a choice. Um, So she's lent an apartment by Germaine and she's able to kind of figure it out. But like so many people, including a lot of the um, like wireless operators are just moving in because the radio detectors are getting even better. They get, information that one of the guys is a very famous resistance guy um who's an soe agent and the message that they capture when they capture him refers to a marie who's the leader of an soe circuit they give his actual name like it's such a bad message to have been captured um they found a diary in one of another arrests and they found their arms and explosives and Basically, at this point, she realizes, like, I don't have any, I I don't have any options. She doesn't want to leave um, her men in prison. She's still trying to get them out, but she's not able to see things through. She's also really wanting to start to help to facilitate drops of weapons and ammunitions and arms and supplies. But she just is able to plan them. She's not able to see them through. And then basically, she finds out and from... Um, one of her colleagues that, um, what, what do they say? I think they say, uh, like it's happening tomorrow basically. Um, and so she leaves, um, she doesn't tell anyone really. She just packs up leaves. And, um, very quickly after that, uh, the Gestapo and the Abavir move in and arrest Germain and the doctor hmm. and, two other people who had been helping that were very close to her, um, a couple, a married couple, and basically take down quite a bit of her circuit. But she's on a train to Perpignan and, um, or Perpignan, I guess. And it's Southern France and it's very close to like the Catalonian region. And it's in the Pyrenees. She -hmm. stays in at a hotel and she finds a pasteur who's a mountain guide and the guy's like, I don't necessarily want to take you cause you're a woman. And also it's in the winter and it's not going to be good. And so the Americans invade North Africa and they win. And that's what kind of starts a lot of this too. And so the rate of passer whose people don't make it is very high, which is concerning. Um, <laughs> But this is a, you know, 
7,000, what is it? It's like a 7,000 foot mountain pass. They have to go through several feet of snow. It's not good, but they find a passeur and his name is, I think, is it Jose? And he's going to lead them and he's very good. But when she gets there, he demands 20,000 francs and, um, She's like, okay, that's fine. Like, you know, it's going to be expensive to make it out, but she's got to. She has no other option. And Klaus Barbie found out that she had escaped from them. And he says, I would give anything to get my hands on that limping Canadian bitch. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, He's a monster. Um, And so with a guide and with two other men who are there who show up and she's like, oh, shit, I don't want to be with them but i have no choice mm-hmm. and there are men who have been referred to her because they need help escaping and she goes fine so she negotiates a good sum for all of them to leave mm-hmm. and she has to climb five thousand feet in the first day and it's a Oof. in total 7500 foot pass in the piane to spain they have to cover up to 50 miles in two days Oof. Over 50 miles, excuse me. And the route rises 500 feet over two miles. And then it's just immediately steep and steep. And Cuthbert is not helping. Yeah. Not helping. And she's able to relay a message to the SOE saying Cuthbert is tiresome. (laughs) Cuthbert is being tiresome. And they respond with, if Cuthbert is troublesome, eliminate him. (laughs) So she's like, great, thank you. Um, She's not well-nourished because she's not able to do anything, but she also knows that she cannot let the passer know that she has a fake leg. He will abandon her and he will not take her. So she's struggling Mm -hmm. through many feet of snow. She is able to, at one point, kick through about four feet of snow with her good leg to follow through with Cuthbert, but her stump is oozing. It's getting blisters. It's bleeding. Oh, geez. And she's trying to add, she had special socks to help cushion, but they, you know, they weren't mm-hmm. doing much and they had been worn pretty well because of all the work she had been doing. And yeah. so she literally is like, I'm not able to do anything. So she just keeps pushing many, many, many able-bodied men and full non-disabled people have died on this route. A USA um, Air Force pilot who was like tip-top shape called the climb endless and a bitch of bitches. (laughs) (laughs) And the rivets in Cuthbert are not really working any well. They finally reach a pass that's, you know, at 6,000 feet and they're able to rest a little bit. And (sighs) Even there, she's hiding Cuthbert. So under blankets, she is able to take him off and assess the fact that, yes, she's having horrible blisters. Yes, she's bleeding. And she's able to um, switch out some socks so that the bloody ones can dry out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And the next day was Friday the 13th. (laughs) So the path is even steeper. And it's like, where the hell is Spain? They have to climb up in a single file. (laughs) It's like a sheer drop on one side and the wind is battering them again. The snow, there's a lot of wild animals. And at this point, they're almost there. And the pastor's like, that's the rest of the path. I'm going back. He takes Mm -hmm. the rest of the money and he leaves. And they find a little place to go. And they finally make it into 
the first Spanish mountain town. It's four degrees below zero. And finally to the valley where it's a little nicer. They attempt to make it to Barcelona. And she's the one encouraging her her companions to push through the pain. Mm -hmm. Most of them couldn't like lift their heads to walk. She thought she could walk a little bit more with Cuthbert, but it's slippery. They're going downhill and she's not able to do anything. She has to lean forward to walk downhill because she didn't have any flexibility because she had a fake ankle. Yeah. It's truly the most insane thing in the world that she made it through that pass. I don't even have the words to describe it. No one ever would have even taken her if they had Mm -hmm. known about Mm -hmm. Cuthbert. The moment they get to San Juan, they get to a train station, they sit down to wait for the 5.45 a.m. morning train, and a paramilitary police force finds them. They know they don't look good, and they arrest them. You're kidding. I'm not kidding. (sighs) She ends up spending 20 days in prison, um, but she eventually is able to get a message out to her ladies. Uh, through a woman that she befriends in prison who gets released before her. <laughs> she's able to get a message to the consulate and she's eventually released. She is sent back. Uh, she eventually is able to get back to England and is immediately like, I have to go back. No. I have to keep helping. No. And everyone's like, your literal sketches of your face are up everywhere and they want to skin you alive. Like, yeah, yeah. no. And she's like, "I there's... People are suffering and I'm, I can't just sit here and she's doing some clerical work and she's helping, you know, with the organization of some missions, but she's just chomping at the bit, chomping. And the SOE is like, we can't send you back. You are literally too compromised. You are, you have been burned. Yeah. And she's like, fine, at least let me learn how to do, be a wireless person. So she takes the wireless course. And then she talks to her boss at the SOE who loves her. And she goes, um, Boddington, and she goes, I think I'm going to apply to the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, who's the American branch, basically, of secret Mm -hmm. operations. And he's like, do it. I fucking love you. So she applies. (laughs) She's hired. She's given a military rank. She's a second lieutenant. She's given basically no money. And about a year and a half since she left France, after working dumb jobs and being mad, on March 21st of 1944, she returns in Brittany by a motor gunboat because she wasn't able to parachute. Why? Because of Cuthbert. Right. She was given a new code name. It was Diane, which I love. And she was given mm. an idiot companion. Not again. Named Yeah. Codenamed RMA. He was 60-something. He was the oldest um, operative ever to be sent into the field at that point. I'm sure they have older ones now. Um He was a grumbler and he wasn't there, but he, his heart was in the right place. I think is what she ended up saying. Hmm. She, um, went to the dentist and had her teeth filed down. She dyed her hair and put it back in a severe bun. She adopted a new form of walking and basically made herself plumped out. And she looked like a peasant woman. Um, she pretended to be really hard of hearing so she didn't have to speak too much because her accent would give her away. Mm-hmm. And she shuffles now into France and she's to help train and arm resistance groups in a different part of France. They're called the Maquis. 
so that they mm-hmm. can support D-Day, the Allied invasion of Normandy. So she's sent in March, on March 21st, and D-Day's going to take place at some point in June. And everyone knows at this point in the war that, like, the Allies are going to land in France. Like, it's, they know, they just don't know where, and they don't know when, and Hitler's like, I'm going to build a wall. And um, that doesn't happen very well, and is not very effective, because he doesn't do it well, and he doesn't really do it. And so they, everyone's like waiting. Um, but in the 18 months since she's left, France is in an even worse position. Mm-hmm. You know, the Vichy government has collapsed. There's no point in even pretending otherwise, you know, um, it's, it's grim. Um, the Allied bombing is not as bad as it was in the, what she saw in London with the Blitz and, and what we now know was happening by the Allies to the Germans. Um, but Paris, you know, the city that she couldn't love more was, was not the same city and friends of hers were gone and missing and some she had been able to successfully, her prison schemes, you know, made it, but not all of them. Mm-hmm. And so she and, um, Henri Lasso, he's the guy who goes with her. She's his wireless operator. And together they were the fourth and fifth OSS agents that, made it into France the entire war. Wow. He's given a million francs and she's given 500,000. At the time, a million francs was about $5,000 or mm-hmm. British pounds, excuse me, 5,000 pounds. And very quickly, the moment they're getting off of the boat, he slips and hurts his knee and he won't stop bitching about it. And he's limping and she's like, well, at least you look more like an old man now. And he was not happy with that. Very quickly. She realizes he loves to chat and he shares too much. So as soon as she can, she kind of abandons him. Um, they get to Paris and, and he's like, I'm going to for their yeah, line of work. Truly the worst. Um, she finds her old friends in France and they host her and they, re- they all are like, I don't want less anywhere near my house. He's going to wrap me. He's going to get me caught. Like, you know, all of her old friends, like they're going to kill them. Um, and so she's like, yeah, you shouldn't ever go back. She thinks she's being tailed. Like she's lying to him so that he won't get her friends caught. And so he's tasked with setting up stuff in Paris and she is to go into the Haute-Loire region, which is this amazing kind of, uh, what's it called? A, like a plateau mountain area. And Mm -hmm. it's like, that's where the Maquis are. Um, And they're these men who've escaped and they're pissed off and they're, resistance fighters that are like ready to go ready to go and so as soon as she can she's in the country and she finds that she's able to kind of be with a sympathetic family and she fully like leans into her role as an old woman and like sells cheese to the nazis and they end up like loving her cheese so she's like making money from them which is hilarious And then she realizes, like, too many people are getting caught around me. Like, I think I've been too lax. I need to go. Lesso. And what does she say to him? It's my favorite thing in the world. She says, um, so she finds out about the Haute Loire Maquis and that there's, like, 12,000 men who are ready to help fight. And she's made friends with a woman named Madame Rabu. And she's like, hey, I can make her talk for me so that my accent doesn't rat us out. So she has this woman who's ready to go with her and travel with her. She realizes the men are ready. And she basically has a, a band of guerrilla warriors, like 12,000 men at her command. 
She tells Lasso that she's, quote, leaving for parts unknown following orders. She wasn't. They were her own orders. She said goodbye and added that, quote, he should surely hear from somebody somehow. And he says, oh, I never did. I don't think she cared. So she makes it to the Otloa region, which on its own was a very dangerous journey. And she gets there and there's a lot of male egos, but a lot of eager resistance. And so she ends up putting people in shape. She's getting them ready and she organizes a series of drops of arms and supplies because she goes to win them over and she says, I want to help you. I'm with the allies. And they're like, I don't know. We've been doing okay on their own. And she's like, you're right, but I can give you much needed supplies and equipment and Mm -hmm. artillery. And so they're like, I guess we're kind of going to, we're going to try to support you. And they don't know. And then about a month after she gets there, her first successful drop of supplies comes through and they're like, you're it. We love you. And they, she becomes known as the, the Madonna of the mountains. Sick. I know they just call her this like English officer because they don't know she's American, which is hilarious. And she, you know, she was wearing dresses and dressing older. And then she gets to like the drop zone at like three in the morning and she's wearing like full military fatigues. And they're like, damn, like they're Ooh. so impressed with her. because She's amazing. So cool. She delivers a like further 14 or 15 drops of supplies, like tons, literally tons and tons and tons of drops. Mm-hmm. There's a man there who's in charge. His name, last name is Fayol. He hates her. He's like, I don't really want anyone except me to be in charge. And he really struggles. Um, and he kind of goes against her. So he takes her money, takes her supplies, and uh, doesn't really like her. And so kind of goes around her. But she kind of goes around him. And they're able to fund three battalions of 1,500 men. And they put a sabotage plan in order. And so... D-Day happens and everyone's, you know, listening and they're ready to go. And so on what ends up happening is there's a major railway line and she has them blow up roads and cut uh, electric things, derail freight trains. She destroys bridges. They cut a major railway line between the Puy and Saint-Étienne. And it, it's like it crosses the Loire. It's like the most important thing for the um, Germans to be able to back up their troops for D-Day, like to mm. give support. And they destroy mm-hmm. any method for them to quickly get people to Ooh. go support and back up their troops. It, you know, she basically lays siege to the city where the Germans are. She like destroys any way to get in or out of Le Puy. She cuts electricity and phone lines um they have no power they can't communicate with other units and they're only able to use wireless signals that at this point the allies are like easily intercepting and she continues to harass the troops and do all of this stuff and they single-handedly free the haute loire region the entire region of france and it's one of the first to be freed from the occupying powers. This is insane. Yeah. They basically make the occupiers go somewhere else. And they make them retreat. Um, and at this point, like, 
I mean, all these guys, all these men who are back in their offices and reporting on what she's doing, they literally like don't understand like what's happening. I mean, one of the things that she does, she blows up a train and a railway tunnel. And then once a repair train went inside of the tunnel, they blew it up again. Like just unbelievably brilliant. She gets a a modest promotion and they don't even give her more pay. She doesn't care. She doesn't care. Yeah. And at this point, the Germans are desperate. And so they're becoming even more brutal. She's trying to get her men released. She's doing her best, but a lot of them don't make it. And unfortunately, a lot of them pass away. But her reputation is cemented. And she's directing more attacks. Unfortunately, some don't go perfectly to plan. But like, Mm -hmm. they continue to absolutely destroy the Germans and they move out. They defeated the Germans before the Ger- the allies even liberated Paris. That's crazy. Yeah. It, it's, it's, I literally like don't understand. Um, and so her mom, by the way, the entire time at the war has been in touch with like the secretaries are like, well, we can't really talk about what she's doing, but like, you should be very proud. She's doing well. She's okay. <laughs> and at this point, once they know that they liberated that region, um, one of the women writes to her mother and says, I'm sorry, you know, Virginia's not been touched. She goes, I fully realize how upsetting Virginia's silence must have been. You must not worry, Mrs. Hall. You have every reason to be proud of her. Virginia is doing a spectacular man-sized job. That's nice. Not only... Did she do that in that region? But at the same time, all of her intelligence, when she was still working as like a milkmaid and a cheesemonger, all Mm. of the intelligence that she was doing was giving information on the disposition, on the direction of the the 7th Army, which was the army that was meant to hold Paris. She had been Mm. directing aerial reconnaissance and helping Americans trap and locate uh, German opposing forces to the west of Paris mm-hmm. that ended up costing the Nazis up to a hundred thousand men and allowed for the allies to recapture Paris. Incredible. And she wasn't done. So she decides that she wants to help liberate the rest of France. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so she gets cool. two more officers. Yeah, I know. Right. Like it's, she's not done. So two more officers land um, in the Haute Loire, and they're like, we're going to help free the region. She's like, yeah, 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 you missed that, but we're going to do something else. And they're like, oh, okay. One of the men's, um, man's name is Paul um, Goliot. Sure. And he had been helping in Austria to, with the anti-Nazi movements, and they are trying to go do more work. So basically they build up like another force but then are told to stand down because they don't want to risk lives unnecessarily because basically at this point the germans are going to surrender a couple Mm -hmm. months later hitler kills himself and the war in the west is over and what's interesting is virginia you know eventually kind of makes it back to london and then makes it back to um america and she and Paul so happened to fall in love with each other. So she's like in her Look 40s at, at this point. He's like eight years younger than her. She's a couple inches shorter than her. But 
he's intelligent, he's French, and he um, admires her greatly and knows mm-hmm. what she's done. Mm-hmm. And in the later years, Pierre Fayol, who's the guy who like tried to kind of sabotage her, but they were on the same side in the Haute Loire region, he ends up becoming devoted to her memory. And he tells her um, he regrets his actions and he ends up writing and doing an immense amount of research on her life. And he writes like an incredibly celebrated biography on her and he's lobbying French ministers to give her the Légion d'honneur. And, um, by the time that the lot works, she had at that point already passed away. But, um, he says about her, we know perfectly well, just how much we owe her. How how Um, much she passed away? Did you say? I'm not done. I'm going to get, I'm going to get there. But he, by the way, that like, so they're, they're lobbying for her to get all this great stuff. Um, she ends up learning, um, Germaine and Dr. Rosé both survived. They had been sent to concentration camps, but they survived. Mm -hmm. She's able to give some compensation for their work, but most of those people didn't do anything. Many of her companions and people were executed, especially at Buchenwald. Um, the bishop, Robert Alesh, who had betrayed her entire network, um, was thankfully captured after the war. Finally, he tried to say he was a good guy, but he was captured after the war. No one believed him and he was executed by firing squad, which no one regretted. Um, he like single-handedly was responsible for so many deaths. Um, Klaus Barbie, the butcher of Lyon, was a fortunate yeah. recipient of Operation Paperclip. Do you know what that is? I do not. Operation Paperclip should make everyone pissed off. It was a mission by the U S government who decided they didn't care what war crimes people had committed as long as they could be useful. So the U S government gave him safe housing and, um, hosted him in America for many years where he was able to live with his family. Um, again, I actually, I do think I knew about that. Yeah. That one sounds familiar. Yeah, it's pretty horrible. Um, I hate to say I encourage you to read about what he did, but like never forget, never forget the atrocities yeah. that a single human being can commit. I I yeah. can't get it out of my mind, unfortunately. She ends up continuing to work for the OSS, but she's not very happy. She's with Paul. Um She's doing really well, but now that the war is over, they're like, we don't need women anymore. And that happens a lot to a lot of women. And she, yeah. So she's able to kind of find a place for herself. Um, She attempts to work in the OSS, but ends up, uh, what does she end up doing? She ends up like kind of resigning. She's not happy, but they're, hmm. um, the CIA is getting formed. And so in 1947, she joins them and she's one of the very first women to be hired by them. She was deeply discriminated against. She was passed over for promotions. She was deeply <sighs> qualified. Um, her superiors knew she was amazing. She was given a desk job um, to what? gain information about Soviet penetration of Europe. She resigned in 1948, but then was rehired in 1950. And she, in the 1950s, is able to start heading up um, paramilitary operations in France. And it's because of all the work that she had done setting up the resistance groups and everything else. Mm -hmm. Um, 
she lives a beautiful life with Paul. Paul wants to open a restaurant and be happy. And that doesn't really go well, unfortunately. So French. (laughs) Yeah, I know. And so the restaurant doesn't go well, but he's happily a house husband is what like every book I've read calls him, which I think is hilarious because I think one person said it and they were just like, yes, house husband. She always sends Christmas cards to her friends in France. She never does it with a return address. Um, Mm. What's interesting is one of her men tracks her down like to say hi and that she's like, oh, I'll happily host your kids. But like, if you ever talk about what we did, I'll be so mad at you. (laughs) During the war and actually in 1945, she is awarded the Distinguished Service Cross. She's the only civilian woman from World War II to be awarded that. Um, William Donovan, who was in charge of her when she was the OSS, um, gives it to her. President Truman wants to award it publicly and she says no. She says, I'm still an agent. I'm most anxious to get busy. And so she's given the award in an office with only her mom and Joseph Donovan present. And she's proud, but like does not care. She's made an honorary member of the British Empire. So she's an MBE. And she's given Mm. the Croix de Guerre with Palm. But she won't Mm. talk about anything that happened in the war. Um, She, because she believes like this is still, you know, happening this is still an operational and i don't want to say things yeah she is now starting to work in an agency that's run by ivy leaguers who are not necessarily men who've seen action and don't really Mm -hmm. know a lot of what's happening but she certainly does um right again she's passed up for most things and they are the worst and sexist and horrible And one of them um, ends up saying, what do they say about her? They're, she's an unusually strong person in terms of requirements. And they claim that she's not able to contain her emotions or remain calm in an emergency, which is absolutely hilarious considering that she never got captured by the Germans and all of the men did. Um, They said that her independence was her most significant feature. And of course that means bye-bye. Um, she was men. She's like, she's like the men are literally wasting a bunch of money on a bunch of dumb things. She's given the Balkans desk in May of 1955 and she wants to help. She travels constantly and she's working on paramilitary operations. She is kind of given and one of the first women ever to be accepted onto the career staff, which is like, you're permanent. Um, but she was never promoted. The one superior who liked her, um, was transferred. And then, um, now no one likes her. Um, she is working very, very hard, but the CIA is like crazy anti-communist and they, I mean, she learns about like them working with people like Klaus Barbie, who was responsible for literally torturing and murdering friends of hers. And she's like, do I have to work with them? Like, I don't know. Um, in 1956, a man who admits that he never actually saw any of her work denounced her results as, quote, negligible and claimed she lacked initiative, industry, and creative thought. <laughs> and he posted the report immediately before going on leave so she couldn't actually talk about it. Um, <laughs> later, um, a supervisor is like, well, that's not true because she's actually the most amazing person and she's incredible. Um, 
in the CIA now, in a when they teach about women, they actually do it in a building named after her. Good. And it's called the Virginia Hall Expeditionary Center, and it's their field agent training facility. That's cool. And later they teach, now they do teach about her treatment and about it as a unbelievably bad example of discrimination, especially within their own agency. Mm -hmm. Virginia and Paul finally got married in 1957. Um, She officially changed her name, but now she's 51. She's married and no one at the CIA wants to have a married woman um, there. And so the Bay of Pigs happens, which is a massive, massive failure. And she literally is like so pissed off because they use the dumbest things. Like they literally use a 19th century survey map to guide them. So stupid. And Virginia was kind of in charge of Cuba, but the family never really, you know, they knew not to ask. But at this point, she said she was glad the operation wasn't one of hers. <laughs> mm-hmm. So she was given a small raise and on her 60th birthday, she it was the mandatory age of retirement. So she retires from the CIA and she lives the rest of her life in a beautiful French style house out in Barnesville in Maryland. They continue to host wonderful guests. She cultivates this incredible garden and Paul cooks for her and they do some really beautiful, beautiful things together. She starts really not being able to, as she's getting older, use Cuthbert as much. He's very painful. She -hmm. starts using crutches. She has five French poodles. Excellent. And she reads incessantly about history and travel books and crossword puzzles and loves spy stories. But everyone's like, please write. And she goes, no. Um, Her niece, Lorna, who was like an amazing source for a lot of these biographers, Mm -hmm. um, asked for tales of the war, but Virginia says no. Um, She says that she had seen too many corpses of colleagues who had talked, Mm. even years later. Um, She, Paul uh, suffers a stroke and he's no longer the same man. He has a change of personality. They're both in pain. They're both not very happy. And she's in and out of the hospital and she passes away on July 8th of 1982 in Rockville, Maryland. She was only 76. Um, it could be that a lot of the extreme malnutrition and abuse that her body went through during the war contributed to her early demise. It could I'm be sure, any number yeah. of health things. Yeah. Um, Paul passed away not too many years later. And after her death, they end up celebrating her in a pretty incredible way. Um, but even more so later on, as as there's been a lot of people who are re-evaluating uh, women's roles in history, as we often do. Mm-hmm. So like I said, um, she is – there's a building named after her in the CIA, um, and they teach everything about her, why she's one of the greatest. Um, mm-hmm. And – In the official catalog for the CIA Museum, there's only five OSS operators that have their own section, and she's the only woman. Um, Of the 48 or 58 officers of the SOE who were sent in who were women, only 26 came back. Um, Klaus Barbie ends up being... They He becomes a bit of... Too much of an embarrassment for the Americans, so they have him flee to Bolivia. Um, But thankfully, he's captured... um, 
and sent back to Lyon to stand trial for crimes against humanity. And he sentenced to life in prison and died in 1991. Um, thankfully, um, well, interestingly enough, Alain, who showed so much idiocy, turns out that he learned a little bit during the war. Mm-hmm. And in 1943, he came back to France in the Grenoble area and he disappeared mm-hmm. and died at a concentration camps at a concentration camp in March of 1945. And it seems like the men who remained and the people who remained always had this vision of this woman who came in with seemingly no loyalty and served people in a way that no one could have predicted. Um, And so she's still known in the Haute-Loire plateau. She's still the Madonna. um, Mm-hmm. And she is the most extraordinary operative and can single-handedly be like thanked for so many <laughs> incredible things that she did during the war. Um, so yeah, that's Virginia Hall. <laughs> the like nine lives of Virginia Hall. An insane life, an amazing woman. Um <laughs> and I just cannot believe the life that she led. Um, Truly one of the most extraordinary stories I've ever read. And I, I genuinely can't believe it's real. (laughs) She of every, I mean, every month, every woman deserves the badass title, but this feels, yeah, this feels like a a real through and through badass. (laughs) Truly. Um, truly. I, yeah, truly. Uh, a truly historically badass broad. Well, we're going to post more about her on Instagram. And Maura has suggested a few things that you can go check out. You can also just dig into the internet. There's a lot of great articles about her. The book I read is called, uh, two of the books I read, one was called The Spy with the Wooden Leg. Another one was mm-hmm. called, that one I didn't love. It was fine and then the wolves at the door was pretty good but my favorite was a woman of no importance um Mm -hmm. so please go read learn about her and about the amazing efforts yeah (laughs) amazing efforts of an american woman tweet about it during the war just amazing (laughs) so cool all right thanks for listening like and subscribe right like it like leave us a comment tell everybody how much you love us yeah uh (laughs) it helps rate it does review it does does tell your friends shout it from the rooftops and we will talk to you in a month on the first wednesday of of the month month. (laughs) bye Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.